I'm going to be honest, guys. I love doing the interviews. I really, really do. But I also really love doing these solo episodes for you guys. And I've come to cherish these moments in the week as these little rituals where I just get to be my unfiltered self in a way that you can't really be on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter, because there are such constraints to how deep and nuanced you can be on those platforms. So anyway, I love doing these and I'm excited to be back with another solo episode. This time, it's another request from a follower slash listener. Today's episode is about letting go of approval seeking, external validation, fear of judgment. So how do you get over basically what people think of you. And I have a lot of things to say on this because I've had quite the journey over my 20s of grappling with this. So I have four specific steps I want to share with you guys. So I want to share them with you in case you want to do something, but you're afraid because one of the things that's stopping you is what are people going to think? Now, when it comes to my grappling with sort of the fear of what other people think of me, right? My pursuit of others' approval, there's almost like a before and after when it comes to big life decisions I've made. Because when I was in college, when I was in high school, when I was in grade school, I was a pretty good student. I kind of took very naturally to academics. I loved being a student. I loved learning. I excelled academically. And so I never had to be told to do my homework, to get good grades. And I was pretty sort of intrinsically motivated as a child. I think part of it was because I felt such a great sense of responsibility because I knew that my mom had made so many sacrifices to bring me to the States. So nobody really needed to tell me to make something of those sacrifices. It was just deeply ingrained within me. It was understood. I did well in school and then I eventually got to Brown and I kind of wandered a lot intellectually and academically and in terms of my interests and passions when I was at Brown. But Brown is a school that really creates a container to do that. They give you a lot of freedom to do that. So that was okay. And also really the only family member I had to answer to was my mom. And she has always been pretty much supportive of anything I do, which is such a blessing. And then after I left Brown, I ended up getting a job at Google and that was very prestigious. And I felt proud and my mom was proud. And I felt really good about that because I proved to myself that I could do that. You know, all the sort of checking off of the boxes of what a good Asian American daughter is supposed to do. And then pretty quickly when I was at Google, about three months into my job, a lot of people don't know this, three months into my job there, I already knew I didn't want to be there. But then I stuck it out for almost a year and I eventually left. And that decision was actually incredibly difficult because I knew how it would look for me to leave so early, right? My family would disapprove. I knew it looked kind of crazy and foolish. And I knew that I really had to tee up something that was really solid in order to have the optics seem like I had made the right decision. I did care about that a lot at the time, actually. But what I cared about more was not being miserable in a corporate environment that was basically crushing my soul. And I don't think by any means that's the situation that most people feel when they're at a company like Google. I think Google, as far as big companies go, is a really wonderful company to work at. They have a good culture. I loved my team. I'm still good friends with many of them. But for me, it was not the right fit because I am such an entrepreneur. I'm such a creative. So anyway, going back to 2015. I was miserable at my job because it was a corporate environment, not because of anything to do with Google or my team. I was just not happy in that kind of a context. I felt so broken, to be honest. I felt super broken, like there was something defective about me because I couldn't do the normal adulting thing of sticking it out and clocking in my X number of years in a large organization and climbing up the ladder and couldn't do those normal things that I saw my peers at Google doing next to me. They felt like everybody else is figuring 
figured out how to just sort of buck up and do this stuff, but I just cannot do it. And I tried to ignore it and it would just get worse. And then I finally realized, you know what? Maybe this means there's something better for me out there. So let me just give myself that chance. So I actually started working on a business concept that was weirdly enough, sort of an early iteration of something that was kind of similar to both Make Lane and Potion. Started working on that. That actually gave me the confidence to leave because I felt like, well, at the very least, I can tell people I'm leaving to do this thing, to work on this thing. That was very short-lived because the idea didn't go anywhere and I realized it was not a good idea and there were a lot of competitors, but I did leave with that as sort of like my crutch to at least tell myself I'm not just leaving and kind of floating in the ether. I'm working on this thing and I'm going to build this thing potentially. That was sort of like the mental trick that I had to do in order to feel okay with leaving because right before I left, I did ask a lot of people, including one of my mentors and my friends, what they thought I should do. But then I realized after quite a few of these conversations that I wasn't actually asking for advice. I was just imploring people to grant me permission to do what I knew I already needed to do. And nobody was giving me that permission. And then I realized I have to be the one to give myself permission. I'm already asking for permission, which means I have to give myself that permission. And then I left. And after I left, there were quite a few years of me wandering in no man's land. Now that period of my life, especially in my early twenties, they were such a period of feeling lost and confused and stuck and wandering that I really had no choice but to become okay with looking like I had no idea what I was doing, had none of my shit together. That was how I learned to become okay with whatever people might think about me because everybody compares themselves to their peers, right? My benchmark was my set of peers and classmates from Brown who were all going on to eventually business school or to McKinsey or iBanking or whatever prestigious job or whatever kind of law school, medical school, Ivy League degree. They were all doing such conventionally prestigious just things. And there I was floundering, absolutely floundering, working on practically a new business idea every week. And I felt like such a bum. I felt so ridiculous and I didn't know what my thing was. And it would take me quite a few years before I found my thing. I mean, to be quite honest with you, and this is going to sound a little bit brutal, my truth is that I don't feel like my career really clicked into place until this past year. And I am now 30. So it takes time. Your 20s is young. You don't have to have it all figured out. You have decades ahead of you. And so now I know that. Now I can see that. Now I have a little bit more of that mature perspective. But at the time I felt so impatient. I was comparing myself to my peers from college. I was comparing myself to my peers from Google. I was comparing myself to my cousins. I was just comparing myself to all these external sort of benchmarks that indicated some supposed timeline that I should be on that I wasn't. Because the thing about me is that no matter how much I love to achieve things, I care about honoring my soul so much more. For better or worse, I'm very connected to my intuition. And so when it is telling me that something is misaligned, it's really hard for me to ignore. And it feels like a curse. And at the time it really felt like a curse because I just wanted to be able to get with the program like everybody else. And I couldn't, and I was just so miserable. So anyway, I left Google. That was uncomfortable, but I got over it. And then I was wandering, 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 trying different things, freelancing, startup jobs, marketing, working on different side projects, figuring things out. 2017 launched my first business. That didn't pan out. That was really difficult. It felt like it was my first baby. So walking away from it felt like I was giving up on something that I had already tied my identity to. So that was embarrassing. And then I started Make Lane and that was a lot more fulfilling and meaningful, gave me so much, but I still kind of felt like I've latched onto the beginnings of something that feels like it could be my thing, but it's still evolving and I still don't know what this is going to become. That's how it felt. So I've never really felt just in flow in a way where I had that sense of alignment and ease and creativity and also things were working. Like I had never had both of those things where I felt both alignment and also things were working. I was experiencing abundance. I was experiencing opportunity. I was experiencing 
parenting recognition. Like I had never had that. And so the reason I tell you all of that is because I want you guys to know that I have been intimately familiar with what it feels like to be just so exposed and not accomplishing or achieving in the way that I quote unquote should be and feeling like I was falling behind and feeling like people were probably thinking, what the hell is she doing now? I've had that thought so many times. And because of that, I have both been forced to develop a toolkit, plus I happen to have some data points that made me feel vindicated. Now I have some evidence that shows that all that wandering and all that bouncing between different things, trying different things in the name of following my passions, whatever that means, all of that has actually finally led to what feels like an initial breakthrough. And because of that, now I can confidently say, oh, it wasn't for nothing. It all added up into something. But for such a long time, I had this feeling that it was all going to lead up to something and I didn't know when and I didn't know what it was going to be. And I I felt it in my heart and I felt it in my bones, but I didn't have that evidence to show people. That made me feel like sometimes I was delusional and sometimes I had so much faith and I would just oscillate between the two. And now I see that it's okay to have faith, that it wasn't purely delusional, that it was for a reason. So anyway, that's my journey with that. It has not been an easy road because I consider myself somebody who is pretty ambitious. I've always been very ambitious. I like to achieve. I do have an ego around that. I have some of that because I'm human, but I don't let it drive me. That's quite a preamble. What are the actual ways that I have gotten better at overcoming this approval seeking and fear of judgment? I would recommend four specific things. Number one, you need to find the origins of this fear of what other people think. Where is it coming from? Don't let it be this hazy, amorphous, sinister they, right? Like what are they going to think? What are they going to say? Who do you mean when you say they? And where did that feeling first originate? Like what can you trace it back to when you think about your family or your peers or whoever? Who is it that really comes to mind? Whose face comes to mind? At the very least, now we know that it's not just some monster under the bed that we're afraid of. It's a very specific thing. And we at least know what it is that our fear voice is telling us. In my case, what helped with that was really tracing those feelings all the way back to the whole immigrant guilt thing. I had so much guilt that I was carrying because something in me did not want to ruthlessly optimize for financial and conventional success. I wasn't quite willing to do that. But at the same time, that's what I wanted to do for my mom, basically. And that's what I wanted to do for us. So we could both feel like, wow, we have just been through so much over the last 30 years, almost 30 years. And now we're finally on the other side of it. I wanted that so bad. I've always wanted that. I don't remember a single time that I haven't had that as some sort of goal. Even when I was really little, that kind of feeling of wanting to rescue both of us and take us out of a bad situation that was always just deeply embedded in me. And that is in my case, what was creating that sort of compulsion towards, no, I need to be ambitious and successful and driven and achieve all these things. And if I'm not, if my soul is getting in the way, if my intuition, I'm betraying this other part of myself. And that felt so unforgivable to me for such a long time. It felt so selfish and spoiled. And I had to basically really get in touch with that guilt. I had to become friends with it. And that is what started to separate my identity from that guilt, that fear, that shame. And so I could see it for what it was and therefore see that it wasn't me. It wasn't who I was. And if I saw that it wasn't who I was, it was just this narrative, then it wouldn't hijack me. So that was the way I approached this first step is I just needed to do the inner work of really tracing all of it back to the origins and asking myself, okay, this fear of what people are going to think and how they're going to judge me, where is it really coming from? And it was really coming from a fear of letting myself down, letting these promises to myself 
myself down because I had made these promises to myself. And once I started to see that, then the inner healing journey was sort of initiated, right? So what does that look like for you? This is also an opportunity to be so compassionate with yourself because often these fears that we have, they are rooted in something so deep and tender and deeply buried in us and so primal. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what that process looks like, but kind of implicit in this first step is just being willing to undertake that healing journey. Number two has two names. I call it exposure therapy. I have this wonderful friend, Lauren, who calls it microdosing courage. Basically, the philosophy is you just got to do it. You just got to expose yourself to it in little bitty pieces. Sometimes life is going to force you. If you can, don't wait until life forces you to develop those qualities. I find that it's actually usually a lot easier to listen to the whispers and orient yourself in a certain direction and start to practice that thing on your own so that you don't have to be forced to confront it in a bigger way down the road in a way that's far beyond your control. Instead, microdosing courage. I really just love that phrase. In a way, I mean, that is the whole kind of philosophy behind these day challenges, right? The whole point of the 100 day challenges is not so everybody can go out there and create tons of TikTok videos necessarily. I mean, you do you if that's what's calling to you and that's what feels like it's needed. But the real reason I like to encourage people to do these challenges is because of what these challenges have given me, which is a structured way to practice that courage that sometimes I might lack in certain areas. And so if I see I have a deficit of courage in that area, then I will just make myself do a 100 day challenge because then I have no choice. Then every single single day, I have to just ship. I have to just produce something. I have to do the thing and I have no time really to pause and overthink and overanalyze. I just have to keep going, but not everybody needs to do a hundred day challenge. Obviously, what does that look like for you? How can you start to expose yourself to that thing? How can you kind of almost inoculate yourself against that thing that you fear? You don't have to rip off the bandaid. Again, you can do it in small doses. So figure out what that looks like for you. Do a hundred day challenge if you must. Obviously I'm a big proponent of that, but do it in the way that resonates. Number three is something that I think people who prefer a more rational problem solving mode will prefer. And that is really logically thinking about the worst case scenario, really extrapolating all your fear stories to their worst possible conclusion and asking yourself exactly what is it that you are afraid will happen. Okay. People are going to laugh at you. Okay. People are going to think you're silly or ridiculous right? Or cringe. I think that's something that a lot of people fear. We don't want to be cringe. Okay. Let's say that is the fear. Now, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? If you were to take that to its logical endpoint, what is the worst thing? Are people going to say nasty things behind your back? Is your family going to disown you? I actually think that this is a good opportunity to not only be super logical about the worst case scenario, but if there is a voice in you, a fear voice in you that is really hysterical and melodramatic, let that voice play out. Let it say everything it wants to say. Maybe it's going to say, everyone's going to laugh at me. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to be homeless. I'm going to die in a gutter alone. Like if that's what the hysterical fear voice just wants to get off its chest, let it have its say. That's where we often go wrong. We almost have to treat it as sort of like an unruly child or a pet that just wants to say something. It wants to have its say. And so if you have this fear voice telling you all these things, actually sit down, maybe grab a journal, give that fear voice full freedom to say what it has to say so you can at least know what that worst case hyper-exaggerated scenario actually is. And then once you see it, you might even see that it looks absolutely ridiculous. And that kind of humor, that levity will also help you unhook from it a little bit so it's not so tied to your identity, so it's not hijacking your thought process. So what is the worst thing that can happen? Really play that out, really journal it out and see it for what it is so you at least know what this fear voice is trying to tell you and also what it's trying to protect you from. 
from, right? Sometimes it's just a maladaptive, exaggerated pattern, but it has good intentions because ultimately our fear is always trying to protect us. But sometimes it's trying to protect us in a way that's protecting us from the things that we actually want. Just know what it's saying, what it has to say for you to you. Number four is the flip side of this. And it's my favorite part. Number three is all about what is the worst that can happen. Number four is about what is the best that can happen. This probably is the thing that has been most impactful for me in getting over the fear of what other people think, because of course I'm human. I do all these zany things and I've tried all these things and I'm very entrepreneurial and creative. And yes, I've taken a lot of risks with my career, but at the same time, I'm human like anybody else. I also don't want to look stupid. I don't want to fail publicly. I don't want to be cringe. There is still a part of me that does not want to be cringe as shameless as I can be now. I still grapple with those things from time to time, even with this podcast, even with these solo episodes. I'm sharing so much about my life that there's always a voice in the back of my mind saying, oh my God, do you really want to share that with people? But then I counter that with, well, what is the best that can happen if I share this with people? People are going to get something out of this. Maybe even one person is going to get value out of this. And I'm going to be able to use these painful lessons for the sake of somebody else. And maybe it's going to make them feel less alone. If that happens, that is worth it. I don't care if I look cringe. I will take the L if it means that I am doing something of service in a way that feels aligned with my soul. So ask yourself, what is the best that can happen? What is the upside? Too often we get caught up in what is the worst that can happen? Financial risk, looking cringe. Oh my gosh, what are people going to think? We get caught up in all these sort of worst case scenarios, but we need to counterbalance that with what is the best possible thing that can happen? What do I stand to gain from this? And if that is actually bigger than the worst things that can happen, or if you realize that you can live with the worst things, but you can't live with the regret of not having at least given a chance to the best things, then you have your answer. And I promise when you do that thought process, even though it might seem logical, even though on some level you already know that, just going through that thought process will help you. The biggest reason that I have been able to take some of the risks that I've been able to take is because I almost feel like I have no choice. It's like that Anais Nin quote. She says something along the lines of, wait, let me actually look it up. It says, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. I mean, that says it all. When you're ready to blossom, you're ready to blossom. And when you resist that, you're just going to cause yourself more pain. That's how I felt at a lot of different junctures in my life. And so I just went for it because yes, I was afraid of what other people would think, but I was feeling just as much pain in almost a worse way when I was ignoring what I truly longed to do. That pain for me is actually so acute whenever it comes up that I almost feel like I have no choice. I just have to do the thing. And so I end up creating 100 podcast episodes in 100 days like a crazy person. So that's my process. In summary, number one, really trace the origins of whatever that fear is and recognize that it might be a lot deeper than you realize and be willing to do the healing work of uprooting some of those origins so you can kickstart the healing process and be free of that fear. Number two, exposure therapy. Just got to expose yourself to it little by little, right? And you get to do it on your terms in a way that's in your control instead of waiting for life to smack you in the face with a two by four, because sometimes that's just what life does when we ignore its whispers. Number three, what is the worst case scenario? How can you be super melodramatic and exaggerated about what your mind is telling you, what your fear is telling you the worst case is? And how can you really let that voice have its say so you can look at it for what it is and maybe even have a laugh about it? And number four, what is the best case scenario? What is the best thing that can happen? What do you stand to gain? Can you really get in touch with that part of yourself that is unwilling to let that slip through your fingers? That is my process, guys. I think this is a beautiful question. There's so many treasures waiting for us when we are able to overcome this fear of what other people think. If you have any follow-up questions to this, please DM me on Instagram because this is literally one of my favorite things to talk about. So until next time, uh, share this with a friend. If you think it would be helpful, share it on social media if you think somebody could gain something from it. And I'll talk to you next time.